you have your Bible with you tonight, we are in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23, and uh, we're going to read the entirety of the chapter tonight, uh, 44 verses, it's a lengthy reading, I appreciate that, uh, but we are going to take an overview of the chapter, and then we'll break it down week by week as we go, Leviticus chapter uh, 23, and let's begin reading in verse 1, and we're thinking about the feasts of the Lord and God's prophetic calendar. Verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest and holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have an holy convocation, you shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is an holy convocation, you shall do no servile work therein. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow, after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf and he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the meat offering thereof shall be two tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savour. And the drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of an hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seventh Sabbath, seven Sabbaths shall you complete. Even unto the morrow, after the seventh Sabbath, shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. You shall bring it out of your habitations, two wave loaves of two tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock and two rams. They shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord with their meat offering and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savour unto the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest." You shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be in holy convocation unto you. You shall do no servile work therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. 
And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets and holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of this month, of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be in holy convocation unto you. And you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And you shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month, at even, from even unto even, shall you celebrate your Sabbath. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall be in holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be in holy convocation unto you, and you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and you shall do no servile work therein. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering and a meat offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything upon his day. Behold the Sabbaths of the Lord, and beside your gifts, and beside all your vows, and beside all your freewill offerings which you give unto the Lord, also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And you shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And you shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious and eternal word. One of the most important or perhaps fatal personal documents that I would refer to in my daily business would be my year planner. Uh, this planner helps me to see at a glance 
uh, you know, what I should be doing on a particular day, where I should be doing it, and who I should be doing it with. And the older I get, the more important that document becomes. Thankfully, in this day and age, it's computerized. It used to just be on my wall and had various markings on it. But now it's computerized, and I make sure an important, an important um, dates that I have an alert and a little bell comes up on my phone or my computer that tells me in one hour this is where you need to be or tomorrow this is what you're doing or next week this is what you need to plan for. And it's very, it's very handy. Well, God too has his own year planner. Whatever God does is never the result of afterthought. He's working to a plan. He's working to order. He has his program And he knows what tomorrow brings because he's the one who brings tomorrow. From the Old Testament to the New, from Genesis to Revelation, God provides picture after picture of his entire plan for mankind and human history. And one of the most startling passages that deal with those prophetic pictures is outlined for us here in the seven feasts of the Lord revealed In Leviticus chapter 23, this is God's prophetic calendar. It is, if you like, God's year planner. Now, the Hebrew word for feasts, when we talk about the feasts of the Lord, is the word moedim. And it's a word which appears in Scripture some 223 times, and it literally means appointed times. In fact, the very first time this word is used in Scripture you get an intimation of just exactly what God means by it. Let's look in Genesis for a moment. And chapter 1, this word comes right up in the very first chapter of our Bible. Chapter 1 and verse 14. Genesis 1, 14, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And you see the word seasons there. That's the same Hebrew word that is translated feasts in Leviticus chapter 23, Moedim. And it means appointed times. Why has God set the stars and the planets in the sky? Well, Moses tells us for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. In other words, that we might tell the time. And that's exactly what we do. The wrist watch on our wrists is telling the time according to the movement of the planets, according to the movement of the stars. And so our whole time system is structured around the stars and the planets that God placed into the heavens for seasons and for days and for years. So when you think about it, You know, why has God designed then seven specific feast days or appointed times, if you like, listed there in Leviticus chapter 23? Well, it is that we might tell the time, that we might know where we are in the progression of time. Those feasts are there also for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. God has perfectly planned and orchestrated the timing and the sequence of each of these feasts to reveal to us 
a very particular story. The seven annual feasts of the Lord were spread over seven months of the Jewish calendar at set times appointed, as we've read, by God. And today, those set times, those feasts, are still celebrated by observant Jews all over the world. Now, what I want you to see in the coming weeks and months is how these special days demonstrate the work of redemption through God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They lead us from the cross to the crown. They take us from Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem right through to his glorious second coming and its accompanying millennial kingdom. Leviticus chapter 23 is one of the most profound chapters in all the word of God. And whilst we as Christians are not required to celebrate the feast days, we're certainly required to study them. And it behooves us to study them. Why? Because they reveal to us, first of all, that our God is a God of order. You know, it's interesting, writing to the church of Corinth in the New Testament, Paul said this of God, God is not the author of confusion. And then he instructs that church to let all things be done decently and in order. In other words, God is a God of structure, friends. You know, there are some Christians or some professing Christians who think church should be a free-for-all. That, you know, it doesn't matter what you do and how you behave, as long as you're having a good time and you're mentioning Jesus and God somewhere along the line, well, God will accept that kind of worship from us. He simply will not. He will not. He is not the author of confusion. He wants things to be done decently and in order. That's reflective of his character. The whole universe is set up according to a divinely appointed order. And so from the very first to the very last, we find that God is a God of order. And the book of Leviticus is a book which concerns itself with our order. If you were to study this book as a whole, you'd find that it concerns itself with the regulation of worship. It regulates the worship of the people of Israel. Now, those who think it doesn't really matter how we worship God as long as you do should know that God decreed how we ought to be, how he ought to be worshipped. You remember he, the Lord Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. He said to her, you worship, you know not what. He says, you don't even know who you're worshipping, how you're worshipping, or what you're worshipping. He says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, if you were to read through the book of Leviticus, not only would you discover that its purpose is to regulate worship in ancient Israel, you would also encounter two men in chapter 10 by the name of Nadab and Abihu. Let's look in Leviticus chapter 10 for a moment and see the account of Nadab and Abihu. What these two men did, they were priests of God, (coughs) sons of Aaron, and they took the attitude, well, you know, it doesn't matter how we worship God. As long as we do the you know the general thing. And the Bible says here that they offered strange fire before the Lord. Now what that means exactly, perhaps we cannot be sure. Uh, various things have been suggested about this strange fire. Some suggest that maybe they didn't properly uh, 
used the right ingredients in their incense, the ingredients that would have been divinely prescribed, or maybe they used a, a flame from a fire other than off the altar of God. We don't know precisely what their sin was, but we do know that their offering of this fire was unacceptable, and that God would not accept their worship, and it cost them their lives. Look here in verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord speaks, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me or near me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In other words, he said to Aaron, Don't mourn them. Don't grieve over them. This is God's right to judge them in this way. And you must accept it because he has chosen a particular means and a particular form whereby he is to be worshipped. So the truth is you cannot worship God any which way you please. That There is a prescribed manner in which it is to be done. And uh, here is God setting that order uh, in place in the Old Testament times. Now in, in chapter 23 then, God arranges this calendar to guide Israel in their worship. But this calendar serves not only to remind the Jewish people of their annual obligations, but also to lay out before them their entire history centering upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the second reason why we ought to study uh, these scriptures. We should study them because they reveal truths pertaining to Christ and Israel. We should study Leviticus chapter 23 because this scripture reveals truths pertaining to Christ and Israel. Now, the first of the uh, four feasts during, uh, that are mentioned here occur during the springtime. They're the spring feasts, the feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of uh, first fruits, and the feast of Pentecost. And then you have three autumn feasts, and those are trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. Now, the first four have all been fulfilled during the Old Testament period. They were all fulfilled during the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're familiar with that fulfillment through reading our New Testament. The final three, the autumnal feasts, are yet to be fulfilled. They have a prophetic significance, and although they all occur as far as the practice of them within a 15-day period, these autumn feasts will be prophetically fulfilled at some point in the future. Now, just as we understand the first four feasts to have been fulfilled literally, that is, they actually worked their way out in the life of Christ, and we'll see that as we go, we can reasonably then expect that the last three feasts will be prophetically fulfilled literally also. Now, we're going to look at all of this in detail over the next few weeks, but for the moment we want to take an overview, just a quick overview uh, of these feasts uh, and, uh, and look at the significance of each of them as Levitical feasts. Now, as I mentioned, there are spring feasts and there are 
autumn feasts. And the first feast that you encountered uh, was in verse 5 of Leviticus 23, and that was the feast of Passover. In the 14th day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. And this points to the Messiah as fulfilling the role of the Passover lamb. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, even Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So he clearly identifies the crucifixion of Christ with the Passover feast of Israel. And he acknowledges the type as it is worked out in the work of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation for the Passover at the very time, exact time, that lambs were being slaughtered for the Passover meal that evening, Jesus was put to the cross. And we will look at that in detail, Lord willing, next Wednesday. The second feast you encounter is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In verse 6, it says, On the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And this points to the consequence of Christ's death. You know, leaven is a picture of sin in the Bible, and it makes it underlines the fact that he's the perfect sacrifice for sins. Now, Jesus' body was in the grave during this particular feast, during the first days of this feast, and he's rather like a kernel of wheat that was planted in the ground and waiting to burst forth as the bread of life. Which brings us to the next feast, which is the Feast of first fruits in Leviticus 23 and verse 10. It says, Speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them, When you come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And this points to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus was resurrected on this very day, which is one of the reasons that Paul refers to him in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 as the first fruits from the dead. That's a very important phrase. When he's he's risen, he's referred to as the first fruits from the dead. Again, Paul is tying in the events surrounding Christ's work, his death, his burial, and his resurrection with the feasts of Israel. Then we come to verse 16 of Leviticus chapter 23, and we uh, encounter the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. It says, Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number fifty days, and ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. So it's seven sevens, seven Sabbaths, or seven weeks of Sabbaths, and then you have the 50th day on which the day of Pentecost is celebrated. So it occurs 50 days after the beginning of the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And it points to the harvest of souls and to the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now the church, which was, remember this, the church at the outset was completely Jewish. When it began in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, There wasn't a Gentile to be seen. The whole church was coming out of Judaism. And on that day, God established the church. The church was baptized in the Holy Ghost. 
And it began. And you'll remember that this, this springboards a harvest of souls. Peter preaches in Jerusalem his first sermon in which he proclaims the gospel. And 3,000 Jewish people give their hearts and lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the next feast is an autumnal feast. It's the Feast of Trumpets. And you read about it in verse 24. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets and holy convocation. Now, according to Numbers chapter 10, the Jewish people used trumpets in a number of ways. To First of all, they used them to gather an assembly. Secondly, they used them uh, to declare war. And thirdly, they used them when they were up in camp and moving on somewhere else. That's when trumpets were blown. Now, right now, the Jewish people are a scattered people. They're all over the world. There are a few Jews here in Northern Ireland. There's not very many now, sadly. Uh, There's a Jewish community in Dublin. I think it's also shrinking. Uh, But there is a large Jewish community in Manchester. There's a large Jewish community in London and other British cities. And you'll find that the world throughout. Wherever you go, there are Jewish people. Even in China, there are Jewish people who live in China. And so it's remarkable how far the Jews have been scattered. But this feast portrays their regathering and their restoration as a people up to the coming of the Lord. Then in verse 27, you read of the Day of Atonement. Now normally when we think about the Day of Atonement, we think about the cross. We think about it as a day that was past. But here we want to understand it as a day that represents something future. It says, also on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be in holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls, and offer an offering made by fire unto the the Lord. So this day of atonement prophetically points forward to the actual physical coming of Christ to the earth a second time. That will be the day of atonement for the Jewish nation. Okay, I want you to get that. It's the day of atonement for the Jewish nation, for the nation of Israel. It is, according to Zechariah 12.10, when they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. That's the day of atonement. In that day, the nation will repent of their sins and receive Christ as their Savior, and he will establish his kingdom among them. And then we come to the final feast day, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is referred to in verse 34. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. So tabernacles, of course, arises out of the Lord's promise. Uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles is a reminder, first of all, that the Jews lived in tabernacles. They lived in booths during their wilderness wanderings. But prophetically, it's a reminder that one day the Lord will tabernacle with men. He's given a promise that he's going to dwell again with his people. And this he does when he returns from on high 
to rule and reign over all the earth in his millennial kingdom from Jerusalem. Look in Micah, if you would. Micah, the book of Micah. And I want to pick up our reading in verse 4 of this book. Micah chapter 4. And notice verse 1 of this chapter. And again, don't fret if you say, well, I didn't get half of that or I didn't. It's not a problem. We're going to go over all of it in much more detail in the weeks ahead. Okay? And I, I hope by the end of it you'll be experts on the feasts of the Lord. All right, here we go. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. But in the last days it shall come to pass. Now notice the time frame is set. In the last days it shall come to pass. This is something yet future. That the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Mount Zion, and the house of the Lord is the temple, shall be established in the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills. And people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. That takes you into Matthew 25 and to the judgment of the nations, the separation of the sheep from the goats. He shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. His kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, notice now, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Now in the Feast of Booths, they take branches of palm leaves and they make little, little booths, little, little dwellings. And they'll sit in those dwellings. Even to this day, if you go to Israel, you know, in this roughly around September time, around about this time, I don't know if the Feast of Booths may be on next week when you're there. I don't know. But uh, you'll, you'll, see, uh, you'll see them you know, having these little boxes made and they go out. The Jews will go out and they'll sit in there uh, for the duration of this particular holiday. And when you come into this kingdom age, they're portrayed as sitting every man under his fine. Every man under his fig tree. It's a, it's a statement of security. And none shall make him afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all people will walk, every one in the name of his God. Gentiles will do as they please. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, saith the Lord, I will assemble her that halteth. And I will gather her that is driven out. There's the Feast of Tabernacles. And her that I have afflicted. There's the Feast of the Day of Atonement. And I will make her that halted a remnant. And her that was cast far off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forevermore. So you have a reference there in those latter few verses to all three of those feasts being played out prophetically. The nation being gathered, the nation being afflicted, and the nation then sitting under the rule of Christ as they dwell safely, each man under his vine and under a fig tree. 
So, thirdly, why do we want to study this particular chapter of Leviticus chapter 23? Well, because this, these verses reveal how we as Christians should busy ourselves until Jesus comes. Now, as we examine this particular passage, and, and, and each week we'll think about this, we need to approach these scriptures from three areas. Okay, uh, The first of those areas is their primary association. We need to think about their primary association. What do these scriptures mean? What did they mean to the people for whom they were first written, to those who were originally given them. Well, we've already said, as far as Leviticus 23 is concerned, you know, this is part of a book which regulates the worship of ancient Israel. And uh, this chapter in particular creates special holidays, feast days, in which they were to gather and they were to observe certain things. And they were to recall the blessings of God upon them and enter into fellowship with him. The second thing that we need to do as we approach these scriptures is to consider their prophetic anticipation. Uh, You know, we've considered already how this chapter is laid out and sets out a timeline of Israel's history from the time of Christ's first advent to his second. uh, And all of that centers around his work and around their relationship to their Messiah. And then thirdly, we're going to have to approach it from the point of view of our own personal application How does this passage apply to me? It's all very well telling me Israel had this particular feast, this holiday. They did this. They offered that. They, you know, uh, brought brought a lamb or they brought a bullock or whatever it was. Uh, You know, that's all very well. But how does that apply to me now? Living here in Northern Ireland in the 21st century, many many miles removed from Israel, uh, many centuries removed from these uh, particular commandments. Uh, How does this work out in my life? Well, Leviticus chapter 23 will actually speak to us about our own worship and about our own witness. I want you to notice something very quickly and, and we'll wrap this up. But I want you to notice, if you will, how often throughout this chapter the various feasts are said to be unto the Lord. And let's just look at, uh, look at this. I mean, this occurs right throughout the chapter from verse 6 all the way down to verse 41. But if you look at verse 6, on the 15th day of the same month, is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Verse 8, But you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. The end of verse uh, 12, or let's read verse 12, You shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf and he lamb without blemish of the first year for an offering unto the Lord. Verse 13, And the meat offering thereof shall be two tenths deal of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And you read that over and over again. It's unto the Lord. It's unto the Lord. It's unto the Lord. And notice also in verse 2 that the Lord describes these as these feasts as the feasts of the Lord and refers to them as my feasts. They're my feasts. Now that's, that's interesting because you know, we read earlier the word feast means appointed times. These were Israel's appointed times with God. Now another term that is recurrent in this chapter, and I'm sure you heard it as we did our opening reading, was the word convocation. Did you see that word? Now you may have said, what in the world is a convocation? Okay. Well that just means an assembly, a gathering of people, of people being called together. And so these feasts were really great get-togethers of the Jewish nation. You know, the Jewish people were called to get together. Uh, they still do it. Uh, I mean, if, if Mark, I'm not quite sure what the dating is and what way the Jewish calendar is working, but if Mark should get to Israel 
in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. I hate to tell you this, there won't be room to swing a cat in Jerusalem. <laughs> and because those Jews are coming from all over the world, it's a family gathering. They're coming in. And uh, you know that place will be absolutely teeming with people. It'll be an assembly. And uh, you know uh, all of these feasts are about a gathering in. Uh, these seven holy days uh, brought the Jewish people together three times each year. And all seven require three special convocations. This was God's time. His feasts. But how quickly do his feasts degenerate and become something of mere form and duty. Look at Isaiah chapter 1 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 1. Now bearing in mind that God said, these are the feasts of the Lord. These are my feasts. This is a holy convocation. This is what I want you to do. I want you to observe these days and Sabbaths, and I want you to bring offerings unto me. But notice what he says to them in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10. As the people of Judah are beginning to slide, as they're beginning to move away from the truth of God and they're buying into idolatry, here's what the Lord says to them. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Now Solomon and Gomorrah have long since disappeared from the map. He's likening them to those wicked cities. And he says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations, no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot away with its iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, notice that phrase, your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now notice, Leviticus chapter 23, he calls them the feasts of the Lord. My feasts. You get to Isaiah, what does he refer to it as? Your feasts. Your appointed feasts. He says, they're not mine anymore. It's all about you. It's not about me as such. And notice by the time that the Lord Jesus Christ comes along, turn with me to John's Gospel chapter 2. They're referred to as Jewish feasts. No longer the feasts of the Lord, no longer my feasts, but Jewish feasts. Chapter 2 and verse 13 of John's Gospel, it says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand. Not God's Passover. The Jews' Passover was at hand. Chapter 5 and verse 1 says, After this there was a feast of the Jews. We don't know which of the feasts that was. But it says, after this there was a feast of the Jews. It's not the feast of the Lord. It's the feast of the Jews. Chapter 7 and verse 2. Again, with the, uh, the feast of tabernacles. It's now not the Lord's feast, but the Jews' feast. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And think about the application of this. What began as a holy convocation, as a holy assembly and gathering 
has degenerated into an unholy convocation, which God has no desire to look upon. And here's the solemn lesson for you and I gathered here this Wednesday evening. It's possible that we too may lay hold of the holy things of God and lay hold of those times when he calls us into his fellowship and calls us to meet in worship with himself and turn them into mere duty, a box-ticking exercise. Well, I went to church on Sunday. And that's where the Jews were. Well, I've done the feast. I've done Passover. We've had unleavened bread. Yeah, first fruits is over. That's how they were. They were indifferent to them. And, you know, can we, as Christians, not do the same thing or a similar thing? Can we not take the Lord's Day, for example, and make it our day? It's not the Lord's Day, it's your day. You see, if it was the Lord's feast, they should have been diligent in their observance of it. And, and their heart should have been right before him. But the Lord says, not my feast, now it's your feast. It's not the Lord's feast, it's the Jews' feast. And sometimes we're guilty, all of us, we can be guilty of making what is the Lord's day our day. Making Sunday a fun day. Now I'm not, I'm not suggesting for one moment that we have to have a list of rules and regulations for the Sabbath day. That's not what the Lord's day is about. But nevertheless, you know, we are called upon, you and I as Christians are called upon to meet with one another every Lord's Day, to gather in this place and to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happens? The weather's good. What happens when the weather's good? People come out, perhaps in the morning, and they say, you know what, it's a nice day. Let's just skip the evening service and we'll go to Newcastle for the evening. Or maybe they don't come to church at all. Or they just go out for a drive or, or whatever. Or, or maybe, you know, they, you know, folks sometimes arrange for visitors to come. Oh, I can't come to church today. Why? We'll have visitors coming. There are other days in the week to have visitors come. Why would we have visitors come on the Lord's Day? Uh, you know, or, or there's something on television. There's a, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a great movie on tonight. Oh, there's a, there's a big game on. You know, I just read this last week about a big church in America. It was Labor Weekend in America. That's a, would be, I suppose, like a bank holiday weekend to us. And this church cancelled both its morning and evening services because it was Labor Weekend. You know what? I can understand them maybe cancelling one service. But cancelling all services, not meeting at all to worship the Lord. You know, this year, Christmas Day falls on a Sunday. Guess what we'll be doing on Sunday? I hope. I hope we'll be here to worship the Lord. You say, oh, well, Pastor, it's Christmas Day, Santa comes. <laughs> Forget Santa. It's the Lord's Day. And we ought to be in our place of worship. You know, how easy it is to, to let these things go. I, I, I was, as I was preparing today and I was thinking about this, my mind went to a little poem that I had written in an old Bible and I photocopied it and I want to read it to you. It's called A Mile and a Half from Church. I haven't read this poem in ages. It says, We're a mile and a half from church, you know, 
and it rains today so we can't go. We'd go ten miles to a party or a show, though the rains should fall and the winds should blow. That's why when it rains we just can't go, but we always go to the things we like, and we ride if we can, and if we can't we hike. We're a mile and a half from the church, you know, and a tire is flat, so we can't go. We'd fix it twice to make a visit, and if there's a game, we wouldn't miss it. We'd mend the tire, if at all we could, and if we couldn't, we'd go afoot. For hunting pleasure is all the style, so the church will have to wait a while. We're a mile and a half from the church, you know, and our friends are coming, so we can't go. To disappoint our friends would seem unkind, but to neglect worship... We don't mind if we may please our friends on earth and spend a day in feasting and mirth. But sometime when we come near the end of our days, we'll go to church and mend our ways. It's thought-provoking, isn't it? How easy it is just, you know, to be, just let church become a formal thing, to be half-hearted about it, to, you know, to even... Even to the degree, like, well, it doesn't matter how I worship, when I worship, where I worship, as long as I worship in some form. Friends, we need to search our hearts and remember that God has called us here, particularly on the Lord's Day, to meet with Him. Not to meet with me. Not to come and see what the pastor has to say. Not to come because I have some duty, I'm a Sunday school teacher or I'm a deacon or I have a, a, a music position or whatever. No, I'm coming to meet with him and his people. And then I want to think as we close out just where we are on this calendar. If we can have that last slide please, Alistair. For sure, if you go back one place. For sure the, 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 the whole... T- the whole timeline, we'll get there, Alistair. <laughs> the whole timeline, he always likes to keep me on my toes, doesn't he? Um, the whole timeline relates to Israel and to Israel's history and to God's plan for that nation. But it also has something to say to us. There's a fatal lesson for us here. You see, right now, the church age is located between Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets. You see that? The spring feasts are past. The autumn feasts are future. Pentecost is done, Acts chapter 2. Trumpets is yet to come, the regathering of Israel, Matthew chapter 24. And we are located at the church age in between those uh, those two feast days prophetically. Now, during that period of time between the Pentecost and trumpets, what were the Jews doing? I'll tell you what they were doing. They were harvesting. They were, they were bringing in all of the wheat and all of the crops that they had planted and they were storing those things up ahead of winter. During that period, the Jews were at work on their farms. Now, here's what I want you to get. The church age is a time of harvest. We're supposed to be harvesting. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus when he said to his disciples, Say not ye, there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the field, for they are white already to harvest. Harvest will soon be past. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the hour when we must busy ourselves seeking to win men and women for Christ. God's prophetic clock is ticking. 
Time is passing. Each passing day is one day closer to the realization of the autumnal feasts. Time is short. Make no mistake about it. Leviticus 23 is a monumental chapter of God's word. It is filled with symbolism, types, and shadows, and its message is way too important for us to miss. God has set out his year planner. He knows the day. He knows the hour. He sees it at a glance. He knows exactly where we are along the timeline before the trumpet sounds. He knows. And the soul-searching question we need to ask is this. Do we know? You know, we don't know exactly where we are on that church age line. But I'll tell you this. The way the world is going, I think we're far closer to trumpets than we are to Pentecost. We're running out of time. What are we doing? Are we worshipping him acceptably? Are we fellowshipping with him with vitality? And are we witnessing for him faithfully? That will be our challenge as we study the feasts of the Lord. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening.